Let us now read from God's Word as we find it in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. There we have God's Word as follows. Then he, that is the Lord Jesus, said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then he will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. And they will come from the east and the west from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Let us now read together from what we, from our confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 48. There we find a summary of God's word about the kingdom, as follows. What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, as you know, Canada is known as the dominion of Canada, not as a kingdom. Essentially, however, there is no difference between these two words. And that is also clear from Psalm 145, verse 13, which says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. They are synonyms, and so they are used interchangeably. In deference to the United States, the Founding Fathers in 1867 preferred the word dominion. Because 
Canada is a kingdom. It is ruled by a queen or a king. Right now it is Queen Elizabeth II. Even though she lives in England, she is nevertheless the head of our government. She abdicates that responsibility of governing to others. She does that through various representatives, such as governors general and members of her family, and through parliament. The queen and her representatives are very visible. Among most people, there is a great love for the queen and her house, and they want to maintain that age-old tradition, that connection with the queen in England. The monarchy is considered something worthy to fight for even. It represents freedom and strength and prosperity. When we had a visit from Prince William and his wife, Kate Middleton, a few years ago, most people were quite taken in by them. And because of their visit, the monarchy received somewhat of a boost in our midst. You would think that as we speak about the kingdom of God, there would be the same kind of zeal and love, wouldn't you? Certainly, as you know, that is not the case. Many people do not even think about the kingdom of God. They don't even know what that is. When we speak about the dominion of Canada, we know what we're talking about. Then we know where the boundaries are and who the government is. And we know that the kingdom of Canada, what that represents in the world. And we know many things about it. But when we speak about the kingdom of God, there is a lot of ignorance. Why do you think that is? Well, in the first place, the monarch of that kingdom is invisible. He is in heaven. We are on earth. The Lord God, of course, has his representatives here on earth, such as ministers and elders, and indeed all those who believe. But they are all over the world, and they represent someone who cannot be directly seen or heard. We also have problems with the boundaries of God's kingdom. What exact, Where exactly is the kingdom of God located? Who precisely are the citizens of that kingdom? These are important questions. Although the Lord's Prayer is short, Jesus teaches us to pray twice about the kingdom, at the beginning and at the end. He also mentions the kingdom of God throughout his ministry on earth. Many of his parables relate to the concept of the kingdom of God. We just read a passage where that kingdom is mentioned time and again. And so Jesus, time and again, draws our attention to this. And for that reason, he wants us to pray for the coming of his kingdom, because he wants his kingdom to grow in this world and in our hearts, so that we can see it and so that we can experience it, so that we can learn all about it, and so that we can also be excited about it and promote it. Because that's what we are called to do. And that's what I want to preach to you about this afternoon. It is about the growth of God's kingdom.
And then we will see that God's kingdom goes in the first place from small to great, and the second place from great to perfect. So it's about the growth of God's kingdom. The Jews expected a speedy establishment of a powerful earthly kingdom. And they were looking for some some kind of savior who would deliver them from the hands of the Romans and establish the nation Israel as the most important one in the world. They thought that would happen because of the way that they interpreted the prophecies. However, Jesus teaches, first of all, that God's kingdom is not a kingdom with physical borders, as with as is the case with the countries of the world. No, it's a spiritual kingdom. That is quite clear from verse 28 of Luke 13, where he speaks about those who live in the kingdom of God, namely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. Those people died long ago, and they now live with their Father in heaven. And it is not a kingdom that is established overnight. That kingdom is established over time. And it goes from small to great. And that is why he compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. A mustard seed is very small, yet it produces a huge tree in which the birds of the air can perch in its branches. Although God's spiritual kingdom has its seat in heaven, it is also established on earth. But look at how small the church was at the time of the Lord Jesus. Oh, sure, there were believers at this time, people belonging to God's kingdom, but they were few and far in between. And by and large, God's covenant people of old had rejected God's rule, and so had the rest of the world. But then Jesus comes along. He started with 12 disciples. Others also became followers of the Lord Jesus, but the numbers of followers fluctuated. Many followers later rejected him again for various reasons. After the death of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his ascension, the number was still small. Some 120 men and women in Jerusalem. Negligible. But then on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 were added. And from that moment on, the numbers increased. The gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings finds receptive hearts all over the world of that day. And the word spread through Judea, Samaria, Damascus, and the villages in Asia Minor, in Turkey, Greece, and Europe. Today there are some two billion people who call themselves Christians here on this earth. And that mustard seed that the Lord Jesus spoke about grew into a large tree with branches covering the whole world. It's wonderful to see that kind of growth. But do you think that when Jesus speaks about the growth of his kingdom, that then he refers to numerical growth, and that it is all about numbers? 
we would be inclined to think so. After all, doesn't the Catechism not also interpret this that way? For it says that the praying about the kingdom of God's kingdom is praying for the preservation and increase of his church. The churches in and around Edmonton have grown as well in the last few years, and it continues to grow in numbers. But is that what it is about? No. That's only part of it. All over the world, many people claim to be Christians, but are they necessarily what they claim to be? And many people faithfully go to church, but that does, does that necessarily mean that they are part of God's kingdom? God's kingdom, brothers and sisters, is only for those who recognize and celebrate God as king in their lives. When he is your king, then he rules over you and in, in you. He rules your heart. That means that you are no longer the one who determines what is good, but that God is the one who does that for you. You let God have dominion over you, all of you, your heart, your wallet, everything. And that is something we have to learn. But that's hard. And it begins in a very small way. Think about little children. A little child at first only knows how to respond to the desires of the flesh. When a child is hungry or needs to be changed, he or she will cry. The child automatically will do that. That's natural. It will demand attention. It wants to be served. But as the child grows up, he or she must learn to think not only about his own needs, but also about the needs of others. And the child must learn to think about what God wants. And so as they grow older, they have to learn patience. Children must understand that they do not right away get what they want when they want it. They must learn to share, not to covet. They must realize that they cannot become angry when things do not go their way. In other words, they must learn how God wants them to conduct themselves. And brothers and sisters, that's a lifelong process. And it is a slow process. It is something we have to continue to learn all our lives. I know I do, even though I'm in my 70s. I have to continue to learn to let God rule my heart. Because he is king, I am his subject. And I have to be his obedient subject. You too. Do you know what it takes to be an obedient citizen of God's kingdom? Well, it involves death. It involves sacrifice. You have to put to death your old nature and put on the new nature. The parable about the mustard seed seems like a straightforward story, but really it is quite profound. It has a very deep meaning. Think about it. A mustard seed has to die first. Because that seed has to be buried in the ground. 
only if you bury the seed can it produce life. And that old seed has to die off so that new life can come out of it. A few years ago, when I still had a vegetable garden, I dug some new potatoes out of the garden. Each plant had at least half a dozen beautiful red potatoes. They were fresh, and once you wash them off, they looked beautiful. But when I dug them up, with each plant, there was also one rotten, shriveled potato. That old potato was put into the ground in the spring. From that old potato came new life. But now, it's no longer any good. It's dead. It stinks. It's no longer any good for consumption. Well, brothers and sisters, that is also how it is with the kingdom of God and with him who inaugurated it. For what happened to the Lord Jesus? Well, he died. And he was put into a grave. He was dead and buried. You see, that's the way of the kingdom. The kingdom of God does not come about through earthly powers and magnificence and power. God's kingdom comes in weakness. It comes about through the muck and the mud. It comes in a very humble, you might even say in a very humiliating way. And that was clear already from the way that the Lord Jesus came into the world. He was born and laid in a manger, in a place for animals. He was a carpenter's son. He wasn't rich, far from it. He wasn't a celebrity either. And while he was on earth, he had some lowly fishermen as his followers, and he ate with the weak of society, with sinners, with cripples, and mentally disturbed people. There seemed to be nothing great about him. He started out very small. And yet how great he became. How did he become so great? By dying to sin and for sin. Because of our sin, he took on our weak humanity. He took on our stinking flesh. And the flesh had to die. It must be put into the ground so that new life can come out of it. The Lord Jesus became great by dealing with sin, taking sin and all the effects totally out of the picture. And that is the only way that anything or anyone can become great. Sin weakens us. It weakens everything. But God's presence gives power. He is without sin. And when you follow him, then you also tap into his renewing power. And that is why he also compares God's kingdom to a lump of yeast or leaven. God's kingdom is like yeast in a large amount of flour, says Jesus. Compared to the flour, a little bit of yeast amounts to nothing. And yet yeast makes large amounts of flour rise to many times its size. And that's how powerful and pervasive 
God's kingdom is. The Lord Jesus wants us to pray for such growth of God's kingdom. God works in us by his word and spirit, the catechism says. And there is great power in God's word. It may not seem like that to you. God's word may seem like a paper tiger. But with God's word, his spirit takes hold of you, dwells in your heart, and empowers you. With God's word and spirit, you can expel Satan from your heart. With God's word, you can have hope, you can have peace, and you can have eternal life. Someone asked the question of the Lord Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? In other words, what's with that kingdom of yours? There's only a few of you. Perhaps sometimes you think that as well. The population of Edmonton is over a million people. In the scheme of things, we are only tiny number. We have little or no influence. No one takes notice of us. There are only a few of us. A few thousand people among one million. What's that? And sometimes people do join, but then later on they leave again. Isn't that disappointing? Are we ever going to make any headway, some people ask. What are we doing wrong? How come not more people join? And how come those who do join sometimes leave again? But now listen to what Jesus says. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In other words, don't ask how it is with God's kingdom as such, but take care, first of all, that you are part of it. Take care that you are obedient. Keep on striving. That is care. Take care that you follow the rules of the kingdom. Take care that you are a humble citizen of God's kingdom. And that you humbly come across to all those with whom you come into contact. That you reflect all the qualities as image bearer of God. That, for example, you have compassion on others. You don't look down on them. And you are patient with all those with whom God puts on your path. You put on God's qualities of love and kindness. For only in this way can you make yourself attractive to those who are unfamiliar with the kingdom of God and those who are part of it. And so be careful not to come across as someone who has it all together because of your own good works. For if you're not careful, and if you do not live as a humble and obedient citizen of God's kingdom and still live as if you are a citizen of the world, then once the door to God's kingdom closes, you are too late. That's the warning that Jesus gives to all of us. The Lord Jesus describes in this passage how horrible that is. He says, they will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. In other words, it is a place of great pain and sorrow, and that pain will never end. Enter through the small door. Do you know who the small door ultimately refers to? 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door through whom we may enter. Follow him. And if you do that, then he will also increase his kingdom. But he will do that. And he will do that in his way. It cannot be otherwise. Oh sure, he also gives you and me a role. But he always points us to the small door. Tiny. You cannot enter through the door if you're all puffed up with your own self-importance or with your own baggage. You cannot go through the door if you want to take the anger and grudges you feel towards others with you. You can't take your wealth with you either, or your bank account, or your house, or your cottage, or your toys. If you want to take those things along, you're not going to fit through that small door. It's impossible. Satan wants you to think that all those things are essential for your well-being and for your happiness. He wants you to think that being a somebody in this world is important. He wants you to believe that you are the center of the universe. But you know who that center is, don't you? That, as we saw this morning, is God. He is the center of everything. And that is why God wants you and me to fight against the devil. He wants us to pray that the works of the devil be destroyed. He wants to enlist you and me in his army. And when you pray, let your kingdom come every day, then you pray, please, Lord, make sure that the devil is not going to be triumphant, that he is not going to be triumphant in my life. And that he will not be a triumphant in the life of, lives of my loved ones and of my brothers and sisters in the Lord and in all those whom you place on my path that I may show them your kingdom, your rule and how wonderful it is to be under that rule. And if that's how you pray, brothers and sisters, then God's kingdom will grow. God's kingdom will grow in your heart. It will grow in the world. It will become great. And in the end, it will be perfect. Last point. The Catechism says that we must pray this way until the fullness of God's kingdom comes wherein He shall be all in all. The original Latin edition of the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about the perfection of God's kingdom. That's what it is all about. We are looking for perfection, brothers and sisters, for completeness in every respect. Time and again we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then we eat and drink together. The Lord's Supper foreshadows what it says in verse 29 of Luke 13, namely that people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Do you know that the Lord's Supper is a feast? And do you know why it is such a feast? Not because there is such excellent and delicious food and drink being offered. And not because of beautiful background music either. It is a feast because it signifies 
that you belong to God's kingdom, that you are citizens in heaven. That is where our citizenship is, as Paul says in Romans 3. It signifies that God rules and that you recognize his rule. It signifies that you know and acknowledge that he is in control of all things. That he is in control of your life. By coming to the Lord's Supper table, you acknowledge that God is king and that you want God to rule more and more and more over your whole life. That he has dominion over you in your thinking, feelings. And in everything you say and do, you are controlled by him and by his love, which he allows us to share. How wonderful it is to be a citizen of God's kingdom, isn't it? Doesn't that give you a feeling of peace and well-being? And above all, give you a sense of hope and an enormous sense of security. But God's kingdom will be much greater yet in the life hereafter. It will be perfect. There will be nothing lacking. At that time, as it says in Philippians 2 and in many other passages of scriptures, all things will be under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means that he will be all in all. Because then all things will be completely under his control. Not that they are not under his control today. Of course they are. Even Satan is. But right now Satan is allowed to make his presence felt. He is allowed to roam the earth and wreak havoc. But the timing is coming when he will be banished forever and ever and everything that belongs to him, everything that has not been purified will be done away with. It will be perfect. It will be perfect for those who know how to humble themselves before God and others. For those who realize what wretched, wretched creatures they are now. For those who admit that without God, they're dead. That without Him, they stink. For those who understand that we must be put to death, that they must put to death their old nature, and that without the Lord Jesus, they are nothing but a rotten seed in which there is no life. But they will be made perfect. And so pray, brothers and sisters. Pray. Your kingdom come. Your, con your kingdom come in our hearts and in the world. And live in accordance with that prayer. And if you do that, then the king of creation will be visible in your life. You'll see him in his greatness and in his majesty. The more you believe in him and the more that you pray to him, the more visible he will come in your life and in this world. And then all the kingdoms of this world will diminish and come to nothing. But God's kingdom will take on the greatness that it was meant to be. And in the end, when God is all and in all, you will taste perfection. How wonderful it is to be part of God's kingdom. Amen.